welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. An accomplished senior executive, Clive has 10 years extensive experience operating at board level with blue chip organisations. Clive is an expert at improving health, safety, security and well-being culture of any organisation and creating the right environments for people to thrive. His mantra is to be risk aware, not risk averse. A past president of IIRSM, Clive now chairs the Conian Managing Risk Well Working Group on behalf of the HSE and sits on both Health in Construction Leadership Group and Construction Clients Leadership Group. Clive was awarded the Freedom of the City of London for his work on health, safety and security and more recently has been asked by the Cabinet Office to be part of their Inclusive Economy Partnership Programme focusing on mental health. It's good that you've been able to give up your time for us. Yeah, the last time we met up, we were looking at key things in, in your career. And uh, people always like to, in these sorts of situations with a podcast, like to understand where, where you started from and how you got to where you are. And that's nice to be able to capture that, to see how careers change over time and where you end up perhaps where you are now. Oh, of course. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share a bit of my my working life. And it all started back in 1973 when um, I was doing an apprenticeship with my father as a joiner. And uh, after I left school, my father was in the Air Force and he says, oh, I'm sure they do a, a joinery trade in the Air Force. Why don't you inquire? So um, with that, I went off to Leeds to inquire about joining the Air Force as a carpenter. Lo and behold, there was a trade for a carpenter in the Air Force. And believe it or not, it was for maintaining boats, as it happens, MTB boats. But anyway, that aside, I was then asked to take the aptitude test to see what trades I would be uh, entitled to apply for. Anyway, it came back with a whole list of trades, and one of which was a, a joiner. I thought, cracked it. So I said, right, I'd like to put my name forward to go through the sort of training to be a joiner in the Air Force. Oh, that's great, uh, Clive, he said, but uh, we're not recruiting anymore for that role. Would you like to do any other role? <laughs> so <laughs> with that, it sort of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. So I went away and had a chat with my dad and then came back and then chose a different trade, which was all around uh, mechanical engineering and aircraft engineering. That in hand, I then sort of uh, joined the Air Force in September 1974 and went off to my basic training at Swinderby and... Um, it was what what a, an opportunity that was to sort of not only sort of broaden my horizons on everything, to realise what sort of camaraderie you get from working with the, the, with the guys in in the air force. But so yeah, so I did ended up doing twenty two and a half years in the Royal Air Force, going all over the world. I went through three conflicts initially. That when I joined the air force, the the Northern Ireland conflict was still in full flow. And then after that, the Falkland Islands kicked off in eighty two. So I was based in Ascension Island with the Royal Air Force supporting the Falklands. And I, I popped down for a, a couple of times uh, while I was there, but then I came back to Ascension. Then after that, there was the, the first Gulf War in, in 91, which I was part of with the tornadoes in, over in Riyadh. And then after that, the other conflict area I was in was in, was, it was in Bosnia in the sort of early 90s. 
So I've, I've had a, a fair sort of very broad experience of what the forces do and, and what they can do to assist and help other people. And, but, but the Bosnia one was the one that sort of, because I was a family guy with children, seeing what was happening over there, it sort of really stuck on the heartstrings. And, but that aside, it's, it's, it was one of those careers and it wasn't until I left till I realised what it had given me, not only from a, a personal perspective, but from family values and a whole host of different things. You're sort of cocooned in an environment for sort of 20 odd years and you don't really see what's going off outside until you, you, you come outside. And so just before you leave the Air Force, the Air Force give you an opportunity to go on what's called resettlement courses. And in about 1994, the Air Force were really getting sort of into sort of risk management and quality assurance and, and sort of health and safety. And I thought, what am I going to do when I leave the Air Force? That in mind, I, I then went and worked in the uh, RAF careers office for a few years in, in Manchester. And I got involved in setting up all the town shows up and down the country where we had to ensure that the public were safe when they were climbing into a you know, replica aeroplane or climbing onto this bit of kit and that. So we had to start doing risk assessments and things like that. So that led then to me doing a resettlement course to do my knee bosh. <laughs> so so, so from, from a sort of an engineering sort of, career in the Air Force, I then went in basically into quality assurance and health and safety just before I left. And I left the Air Force on a Friday and I started working for a small specialist construction subcontractor on the Monday as a health and safety advisor. How was that? Very grand. <laughs> so, you know, there's lots of things I could say, talk about in, in the Air Force, but it's not until my second career started that you reflect back on what those 22 years gave me to assist me into doing what I've done and to help me get on to do what I have done and, and have a successful career in, in the sort of world of health, safety and risk management, really, Mike. That's brilliant, isn't it? And I think, you know, I, I look at whether or not I should have done something similar, but I went a different route. But, you know, being in the forces, um, my son's in the forces and he's doing all sorts of different things. And where he'll end up, I don't know, but it's the transferable skills. People within our profession is that those skills which have come from all sorts of different walks of life are very much transferable into being a practitioner and actually help you be somebody that, that can actually help organisations to perform in, in all sorts of ways, not only just in you know, risk management necessarily. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of, as I say, it's not until you leave to you realise what it's given you, whether it's about man management, whether it's about building relationships with people, adapting to different situations really quickly. All these sort of things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis, I did in the forces, then transferred, as you quite rightly said, into the world of sort of construction and property management, which I've been involved with since. So one of my observations was being in uh, communications was that uh, there was quite a lot of ex-forces that would come with those skills from the signals. And on the security side, when we were part of risk management, we had quite a lot of RAF, which were ex-security from logical to physical security because I was, I've been a practitioner for such a long time that this thing about that people would say to me, you know, but I was in the forces and, of course, there's no health and safety in there. And you go, well, didn't you have SOPs and those sorts of things? And didn't you have to do it in a particular way? It is, yes. Yeah, spot on. And you don't realise, as I say, until you sort of relate it to something else that that's what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah. but And I think, to be fair, all three forces were probably ahead of industry in particularly in quality assurance for sure 
you know, certainly in the Air Force quality assurance and, and quality and health and safety sort of link together really quite well anyway, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the, the, the motto that's stuck with me for a long time is about always do the right thing, even when nobody's looking. So even though you might be doing something on your own, it's doing it right because you want to do it right. And that's was sort of bred into you really in, in the forces about doing the right thing all the time, you know. Yeah, the um, the other observation was that uh, not having the structure when you when you move from one type of organisation to another, sometimes you move into that organisation because they want that type of approach where it is very much about you know it's a it's a procedure that you go through rather than being a process. <coughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And in yeah. other organisations, they don't want that. So if somebody that goes in with that having ingrained in them they find it quite challenging to say well what am I supposed to do here and it's about well you know you think on your feet type things and a safety perspective or uh, a risk management perspective how, how do you deal with that when you you've been worked in a number of organizations and helped in your various roles how, how do you how do you cope with that do you say it has to be one way or the other or the feedback I got about health and safety was always negative oh health and safety here to stop the work here to stop that then they're not enablers they're just blockers and I suppose my challenge going forward was to change that perception with whoever I was working so when I first left the Air Force and started working for this construction company I went on the tools for six months with the guys working in the business to understand what they did and how they did it and hopefully to earn a bit of respect from them when Clive later on down the line said oh we've got to do it this way we need to do it that way and ever since those early days I've always championed the fact that you don't need all the regulations to get people to do it the right way it's it's about not using that cloak of compliance to get things done as opposed to doing it the right way because it's the right thing to do and and I've had my challenges over the years don't get me wrong and you know quite often health and safety is branded as you do it that way and you do it that way and there's no in between the, the way that I've worked all these years I've sort of challenged that and said well no if you can if you've got the the skills the ability and the competencies to manage risk you can take risk on it's not about saying you can or you can't it's having those skills and competencies to manage risks as you go in. So trying to educate companies that I've worked with, I mean, some companies have been easier to adopt that principle than others, you know, to try and find out what their risk appetite is when you start, where, where do they sit in terms of their appetite for risk? Some are very risk averse, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah, so it, it's always about getting a bit of a flavor and a feel for what the business itself wants. And um, so, as I say, it's it's always been a, a challenge of mine and an objective of mine to not use that legislative book or to, to, to get things done. And um, hopefully over the 20 odd years I've been doing it, it's been well received. And the people that I've worked with have, have, have accepted it as a as a health and safety being as an enabler and not the blocker. No, it's great. And the, the, what I'd like to pick up on is two, two things with that is that one is about going out and like you use the term of being on the tools with the people doing the job because you understand what their challenges are, but also typically they will find the solution once they understand what you're trying to achieve because, you know, they'll find the, either the quickest way of doing it, which often is sometimes the, the safest way, or it's not because it seems like it's the, the quickest way, but it's the, there are some risk associated with it. But the, but the other part about it is this legislation tag that we get which is the bedrock of when I did the diploma or was, and I was teaching the diploma was that we used to spend a, a week on health and safety law 
and it's helpful because it's almost like a, a, a map. Um, it also helps in the conversations you have. But I must admit early on in my career that it, it was a bit of a crutch for me. It was a bit like, well, it says this here and it says, you know, section this or whatever regulation that. And then you realise that over time you become more confident in actually, if it looks wrong here, it probably looks wrong anywhere. And that's what you want to try and achieve. And the fact that the legislation sits behind it is is, is interesting. And, and at the moment, in terms of um, where you are in your, your career, is that you had this incredible opportunity, which has arisen with uh, with working for the Duchy of Lancaster. That, that, that's correct. Yeah, I'm uh, very fortunate to uh, get the opportunity to work, to work for them. So I made, I made a decision sort of probably this time last year that I was wanting to retire from the Monday to Friday world of work. And in a previous company I worked with at, at Lansec, they were really, really good at educating and preparing their senior team to do other things when they retire. And uh, whilst at Lansec, there were 12 of us put on a particular sort of leadership course, which after two years equipped you then to put your name forward to hopefully get some opportunity to become non-exec directors on different types of companies. So, so that two-year sort of leadership course, which I went on, after the two years, it sort of gives you a different view on life, for sure. It, it was a fantastic course, and I'd recommend it to anybody if they can get on it. What the business did then at Lansec was to say, well, look, you've done the course now. We're going to introduce you to a, a recruitment agency that re- recruit non-execs. Let's get a special sort of CV put together for you and, and see how it goes. And so, of course, we did that, and then all of a sudden, you get these emails saying, these non-exec roles are up for it. Do you fancy this? Do you fancy that? And because of all that, you know, I got this opportunity to go for interview for a non-exec role with the Duchy of Lancaster. So it was really, really nice to, to get the invite in the first place and then go and meet them. And uh, lo and behold, here, here I am, you know, but it's, it's, take, it's been a long journey to get to that place, you know, and uh, coming out of the Air Force and, and joining the, the construction company, then giving an opportunity then to go and work at Terminal 5 for the whole duration of the project at the airport, that transformed me as a health and safety practitioner and sort of catapulted me onto a different platform from a client's perspective. And what, what in particular would you say, was the, well, obviously it was, a, it was a long project, so it's huge, it was high profile, but what was there any particular circumstances that you'd share with the listeners in terms of how it set you up for that project? One of the, well, I think the biggest moment was when we were early doors in the project, the managing director of, of Heathrow Airport at the time and the, and, the, and the project was a guy called Andrew Wilsonhome. And um, there was a meeting with all the investors and the local dignitaries and, and the health and safety executive and the like as to he was there to present to them on about the project. It's going to be a £7 billion project. It's going to take X amount of years. It's going to employ all these thousands of people. While he was doing this to the investors in the HSE, I think it was Kevin Myers who was the head of the HSE at the time. He was busy sort of scribbling away at all the sort of stats which Andrew was sort of relaying to the to the audience. And they sort of stopped proceeding and says, well, according to our data and, and what you've just said, you probably killed six to nine people on this project because of what you've just said. And Andrew Wilsonome said, well, if that's a consequence of building this airport, we're not going to build it. So you can imagine the sort of um, initial reaction from people listening to him. But what Andrew will, he says, we're going to do something different. And being a client, an intelligent and informed client like BAA were and still are, let's do something different. And, and from that point in time, they did something different. And that was about 
the client setting the tone for the whole of the project, the client engaging with all the supply chain, the client engaging with individuals in terms of setting up a, a behavioral program from the first day you went onto the site, refreshing it right until you've, you've, you've finished your works, you know. So introducing this sort of behavioral program on, on a project of that size and complexity really absolutely changed the way that, that health and safety was sort of managed and implemented in industry. So, so that one moment really is stuck with me forever by putting your head above the parapet and saying, well, look, if that's a consequence, why are we doing it? We need to do something different. And what BAA did was something totally different. And it just changed industry forever, I think. You know, then bigger infrastructure projects after that inherited all the great stuff that Heathrow did. And that went on to the Olympics and Olympics went on to Crossrail. And, and then that went on to the Tideway. And all these big infrastructure projects have just made it better and better as, as the years have gone on. But for me, it started there. <laughs> Well, I guess it's influenced the supply chain significantly, and there have been some big players in there as well that would have up for it, I guess, on the basis that you get that lead. But had you given the MD a good talking to beforehand, or was it just his nature? Was it just came naturally to him? Yeah, exactly. That, that, yeah, and, and, he kept, and, he, and he left sort of BAA and became a real sort of driver in, in the construction sector anyway. And, and in, in actual fact, he was an ex-army tank commander, <laughs> strangely enough, in his previous life. But yeah, so having, having that commitment from an informed and intelligent client proves that projects are only as good as what the clients are generally. And if you get a good client, you can really drive that, whether it's around quality, whether it's around health and safety, whether it's whatever it is, that they can set the tone and really influence the whole of the supply chain. But in terms of the non-executive uh, position, how, did, how does that feel or how does that look? You know, just so to explain to somebody that's maybe thinking about where they move to next or whether or not a non-exec is the right thing to do. I wouldn't say it's the right thing for everybody because the non-exec roles which you can get paid for and the non-exec roles which you do because you want to do it and it's the right thing to do. So from my experience, I've, I've done one non-exec role sort of eight or nine years ago but then when I moved out of London working I had to sort of hand that in and that was with a, a young Westminster Youth Council so that was looking after all the the young lads within the Westminster borough so youth clubs and all this sort of stuff so being on as a trustee on their board was really again quite quite humbling seeing what you, you know if somebody says to you live in Westminster people think oh that's quite grand but when you go to Westminster, it's not as grand as what everybody thinks it is. And, and you see him working with the kids and the, it, it was really great to, to do that. So, but that was a, a sort of an unpaid non-exec role. And then I went on to work for a, another non-exec role within a, a mental health foundation. So that was a worldwide mental health foundation. So I did that. And currently I'm doing the a non-exec role with the Yorkshire Citizens Advice Bureau. So I've been doing that for about a year now. So that's a sort of a giving back type of non-exec role. And I suppose going into the non-exec role, if you do get paid for it, it's great. But I think people should be going into them because it's that giving back time from all they've done in industry over the years and, and giving your time and expertise and giving it back to, in, in, in a different way. So um, the Yorkshire Citizens Advice Bureau is very humbling in terms of what they do and how they do it. And um, so, yeah, I really, really enjoy that. 
and then of course now I've got the uh, the non-exec role with, with with the duchy which it was a day a month but that's morphed into uh, maybe probably a day or two days a week but but it's it's just really interesting really good that's great that whole concept of you having this opportunity now to say that you can give back and um you've got a lot to give is the is the thing in, in that non-exec they're not saying that you're a non-exec for health and safety fire safety or that it's about the fact that you've operated at a level at senior level so you can influence and help and i think that's incredible isn't it that you know you might have started off thinking yeah i'm going to be a joiner but you end up being somebody who becomes you know and a non-exec understanding organizations and how they behave and how they need to operate and i think this is the the opportunity for us doing these podcasts is that if we can get the ear of somebody that's in a senior role that might be a risk taker, for example, um, or, or not, is to understand, you know, what we can bring and to help somebody make a decision about, you know, where do you get that information to make the right decisions, which is the, for me, has been my mantra is about you can take risk, but you just need to know what it is that you, you're dealing with here. And if you can then make your judgment based on information, which is, comes from people which are there with a vested interest in the success of the organization, then health and safety practitioners and the like are built to do that for you. And, and you know, they, they offer so much now to businesses in terms of what they do and how they're doing. It's not just about compliance anymore. It's, it, it's, it's a real broader sort of profession. And it's just great to see lots of younger people coming into our profession as opposed to when I joined. Most of the people in health and safety were either got the job after so many years because all they came out of the forces to be fair you know a lot of people came into it from the forces as a second career but now i'm seeing lots of younger people coming out of university with a health and safety degree and one thing i've really seen which is really refreshing is that the younger people coming into the profession they're not afraid to sort of challenge and ask some questions they're a lot more confident than i used to be and I suppose the other part is that um, I think we touched on it the last time we met, and it's something which is happening within our programme at the moment, is there's a big focus on competence and post-Grenfell, the, the position about fire safety, for example, and competency. Yeah, just interested to understand from your point of view, Clive, that, that you, you can have somebody that's got what I would call all the gongs, but have they got the competency to apply and, and what, what makes up competency? I'm not, I'm not looking for a, like a, a textbook definition here but what, what's your view about competence well it's interesting i was at the launch last wednesday of the new building safety regulator in westminster and it was really well attended and and the, the hse and the mps really sort of set the tone at the start in terms of their expectations and a big part of all that was the competency and they talked a lot about this principal appointed person or this appointed person that's going to be responsible for these high-rise residential buildings and making it quite clear that you've got to take responsibility for your risks that you have in your building you know and, and as of october of this year if these businesses haven't got their building safety case reports submitted it's a criminal offense so they really sort of set the bar on on, on wednesday in, in terms of that but there's a, there was a real focus about the competencies of, of people. Now, whether it's the competencies of 
people during the construction phase of a project having that competency around fire engineering or whether it's the competency about the people that's pulling the new building safety case reports together that's another area of competency but for me i've always deemed competency as skills knowledge attitude training and experience so all those five ingredients to me make up competency and quite often you might not have all them as an individual but you might have them collectively within the team or within an organization. So it's how you use that competency to do what you're going to do. So it can be an individual competency or an organizational competency. Yeah, that's really helpful. Because there isn't a go there, this is it, tick the boxes on one of those. Because t today you might be, tomorrow is another day where things have changed and things have moved on. And, and that whole competency thing um, is a judgment no, no, exactly. And, you know, it's getting these building owners, these CEOs who become the accountable stroke, principal accountable person to understand that, well, that's your building, that's your risk. You know, you might not be a fire expert, but you've got John, Joe, Susan, all these people that's around you that can help you fulfill that function. So all the weight is not on just one shoulders. You can corporately sort of sort of share it. But ultimately, that person's name's above the door. <laughs> um, I remember doing a presentation to uh, to a board. I was just telling them about you know the health and safety. The it's about get, getting some awareness into the the board and about the legal requirements and you know where the accountability stops and all all the good stuff about you know you are it in terms of section thirty six and thirty seven going to the legal bit. And they said, yeah, but I've got a lot of other things I've got to do like that. So it's not news. I just need to know how to how to implement it and how to run it and how to kind of measure it and that kind of thing. So I, I guess everybody understands that um, in, in some respect, but it's just putting it into the health and safety context. Just on competency generally, from a sort of client's perspective, from a health and safety perspective and, and all around due diligence, just one little story to sort of share with, which hopefully will make sense to our listeners, but we have to have paperwork in place. But as we know, paperwork doesn't make a job safe or healthy, but we have to have it if somebody comes knocking to prove what we've done. Now, in terms of competency and due diligence, something I've, I've always been in favor of, and this is from my BAA Terminal 5 days, is making sure that you've done the proper health and safety due diligence assessment on a contractor that's gonna work on your project. So. So for me, ever since those days, every contractor that's ever worked within the businesses I've worked, they've all been sent quite a, a bespoke health and safety assessment to assess their competency to do that particular role. So, and I'll say, it doesn't make a job safe, but if anything goes wrong, you have to prove how you've done your assessment on that contractor or architect or whoever. So back in 2014, it was, we had a fatality on one of the projects that I was involved with. This fatality happened on a Friday afternoon. So I was summoned to site that Friday afternoon. So the HSE were there, the police were there. Major project, this really big project, central London. So the first thing the health and safety executive said to Clive, can you prove to me that you've done the right competency assessment to point that principal contractor? So as soon as I got my documentation out, the HSC and that, they took the foot off the gas. So they then asked the same question of the contractor, principal contractor, can you prove to me you've done the right health and safety assessments for that specialist subcontractor? So they start at the top and then they work their way down. So as I say, paper didn't make it safe, but no. what it does do, it makes sure that, you know, you can show that you've done the right sort of process if the inspector comes knocking in terms of what you've done to assess them for their competencies. And that stuck with me forever. 
And in terms of the, the work that you've been doing, I remember just talking about you being a trustee of the No Falls. Yeah, No Falls Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and are you still part of that? Absolutely. We've got a meeting on Monday as it happens, and uh, I'm very active with that because of my passion for making sure that all working activities are properly planned and executed and the like. And unfortunately, falls from height are still the biggest killer within construction and, and, and agricultural sectors. So we're still trying to raise a profile on working height activities to get the right equipment to to carry out these functions. So yeah, so heavily involved in that. And we're just putting together, which we've, we've sort of had a bit of help from our colleagues in, in, in the States, we're sending out a questionnaire in the next couple of, probably in about next six weeks to, to the construction sector, agriculture sector, asking them a series of questions about falls from height and equipment and investigations to try and get a bit of a flavor of why these falls happen really. And, and, um, and hearing from people that investigated accidents, hearing from people that's had a fall and been able to tell the tale. So when we get all this intelligence back, it might give us some really useful data as to where to focus our attentions. But currently, from the No Falls Foundation perspective, our evidence suggests that more often than not, it's lack of training, not competent to do it. Their behaviours, uh, sort of um, in terms of improvisation, I think is the right word. You know, that, that they might have, have driven several miles or hundreds of miles to do a job and they haven't got the right equipment, but they'll then improvise to, to get the job done. So. So yeah, the false, you know, the No False Foundation is really something um, I'm obviously keen to be part of, and um, they're doing some great work to educate lots of industry sectors. Yeah, that's great that um, that's going out there, and it's just one of those sorts of areas that to focus on. And if you can make a difference, then that's a great difference to make. And um, I suppose this this thing about you know that tone about the, the competency piece again is the knowing what to do but then when you get there and things are different and uh, it's about then knowing when to stop it is yeah and having that yeah having that courage to stop and say i'm not doing this because because and people want to do things don't they the natural instinct says oh, i'll get it do- oh, i'll be all right i'll do this i'll do that and then lo and behold something goes pear shape there was one thing which I, I, I don't know if i've time just to, to share with you which it's sort of advice to anybody that's in their career from from health and safety or risk management perspective and it's about them having their own board around them and and this is something that i've had over the years and it's i think it's put me in good stead to progress as i've done and doing what i've done so so what, what i've always had is a, a mentor a coach and a peer so a great example of this was my, my ceo at, at Lansec. I used to come out of my meetings, monthly meetings with my boss, the CEO, and I used to come out totally inspired. Even if I felt it it just got this ability to sort of look at things differently, mentor me, have you thought about doing it this way, Clive? Have you thought about doing it? And and you're thinking, wow. So having that different set of eyes and views from a CEO perspective for me, it was was great. I'd always come out really motivated. And then it's also having that somebody then to, to coach you as well. And this is where I had that sort of leadership training where you had, you had a coach allocated to you. So, so that was that. And then the other bit for me was having a peer within my own sector that I would bounce things off. So anybody going forward to progress, those three sort of aspects or ingredients for me was the key to my success, I think. And it, and it worked for me. And, and it was all about sort of building a team around me that, 
not one of them was the same. Everybody had their own different thing that they could bring to the party. I, I used to align it with my passion for cycling. Every, every part of the bike has got a different part to play in the business. Probably when I first started in my business, I was probably on an old rally bike. And when I left the industry, I was probably on a, a carbon fiber Italian Pinarella which has got all the right bits in the right places, doing all the right things to, to make the business work. I used to use my bike as an analogy for, for getting all the right things in the right place. <laughs> but it's great that you've uh, did this in, uh, Clive, because it's, it, it's a massive element to people growing to be the professional practitioner. Is this thing about recognising who is a mentor, and it doesn't have to be a label. It can be somebody that you will go to and, and trust to, to mentor you which is a lot in your case with a CEO who is inspirational, which is brilliant. And that, and that coaching part about that we all probably need to play a part as a coach because there's situations where it's not about, I can tell you this thing, but what do you think is the solution and then come up with it. And you become that coach and uh, help people to come up yeah. with the right decisions. Um, but then also looking at people that, like you saying, you're in a, a different sector and benchmarking and, and doing that kind of thing is important. I remember that was quite challenging for me, people saying, well, benchmark yourself. And that led me to build a network where you could go and ask others about what it looks like. But that's a brilliant bit of advice for anybody. And for those people that get asked to be a mentor um, it's sometimes, or a coach, it's sometimes about what does that mean uh, and how can we get people to be mentors or coaches so that they understand what it means brilliant it's uh, really great to speak to you and inspiring and uh, the listeners will find it really really helpful and uh, from whatever stage they are in their career to, to listen to somebody that's done as much as you've done and uh, an interesting life that you've uh, you've led and you're still leading doing some great things so um that's that's really great clive thank you very much mike enjoyed that thank you thanks so much for listening to risk sleep repeat if you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.